Hey, this is Matt from Star Tours. You're listening to the Mousecapades Podcast. This is James from Hollywood Studios, and you're listening to the Mousecapades Podcast. This is Amanda from Disney Junior, and you're listening to the Mousecapades Podcast. Hello, this is David from Star Tours, and I just helped Nick's son build his very first lightsaber. Hi, this is Marcos over at Star Tours. I don't listen to podcasts often, but when I do, I listen to Mousecapades. Interested in becoming a travel agent yourself and helping others plan their next Disney vacation? Interested in learning more about Surge 365? How to get paid to travel, make $1,000 bonuses, or just simply want to book your next Disney vacation with Disney professionals? Well, Dream Makers at Two Tickets to Paradise Travel are ready to help you make your wish come true. Contact travel at two tickets to paradise.net. Don't dream your life. Live your dreams. Have an idea, question, or want to share your experiences on the show? Contact Nick and Dave anytime. Email them at mousecapadespodcast at gmail.com. Text them at 407-674-0414. Follow Nick and Dave on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Simply search for Mousecapades Podcast. Listen to Nick and Dave on iTunes, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher Radio. Simply search for Mousecapades Podcast. Now, from the Mousecapades Studios, here are your hosts, Nick and Dave. Good afternoon, good evening, listening from your phone, tablet, computer, maybe in your car, at home, work, school, hotel, or even the Magic Kingdom at the happiest place on earth. Thank you for listening to the number one podcast that entertains that space between your ears. This is the Mousecapades Podcast with Nick and Dave. Hey listeners, I just want to say thanks for all the favorite tweets and retweets on Twitter and the likes on our Facebook page. I'm so glad that so many wonderful people are uh, listening to our show. Dave and I thank you very much from deep within our heart. Keep tweeting away, people. 
We have a great show lined up for you. We will be talking with Greg Myers from Paranormal Task Force in just a moment. But just to set the scene for you, in the suburbs of St. Louis, there was a house where an exorcism was performed back in 1949. From that came the famous movie we all now know today called The Exorcist. Now, this story is true. It's about a young boy that was brought to St. Louis in hopes of kind of getting rid of his demonic uh, attachment, you could say. This is a very popular case. It's a true story. It's very thought-provoking. And believe it or not, this house still exists. So Greg and his team have have found themselves in a very kind of uh, controversial show that's going to air this Friday, October 30th on Destination America. It's called Exorcism Live. For the first time in history, they're going to show a live exorcism live on television. He and his team will be going to the famous historic exorcist house in St. Louis, Missouri, where a young boy was involved in an exorcism over the course of a few weeks. Again, this is the same house, the same uh, house that was in the same famous movie based on the exorcism. Greg Myers from Paranormal Task Force is going to be part of this. Greg was involved in the investigation about five or six years ago when they first reopened the case. He was there, and he will be sharing his thought-provoking experience, his, her, his horrific experience with this house and some of the other really dark locations that he has been to, hopefully. Some questions that we have to ask, is Greg and his crew safe doing this? Uh, will they be dealing with the devil himself? He's with us right now, so Greg, you're kind of just gearing up for some spiritual warfare here this Friday night. Uh, welcome back to the show, buddy. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Pretty good. You know, Greg, uh, we have an interesting history together. We met back, I think, in 2007 or 8, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I found you to be a very fascinating individual. I actually ended up selling you some equipment uh, when I moved into our new home, and that's when I really got to know you. Yeah, that's true, and we still use some of that equipment today. So. Oh, awesome. Um, as uh, we uh, rewind back to 2007, um, and you and I uh, kept in contact, chatting on the phone every now and then, and uh, you were approached to sort of reopen the famous exorcism case with some others to see if there was any uh, residual paranormal activity lurking around. And uh, I remember the phone call you made to me, asking if I wanted to be sort of like a, an assistant running coffee and donuts and such to uh, the, the cast members. And uh, a year later, I think the show actually aired on television. Uh, I thought it was the coolest thing. It was a great experience for you and your team and the task force. Uh, back then, did you really know what you were getting into? Well, I had reservations because we had done a lot of research. This is a story that I've sort of been addicted to for a decade or longer of researching out the facts, contacting family members of the boy involved, um, researching those locations. So this was like the gold mine of the paranormal for us at that time. Greg, I got to ask you, you know, when you got there, could you feel a presence right away um, when you kind of reopened this case? Um, how quick uh, did it become apparent that you were not alone? Well, that actually took a while. It's quite ironic because... I went to this location with the mindset that nothing was going to happen. This would be the most blessed house in the St. Louis area. The exorcism started there in that house, but it actually finished at Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis City. So supposedly the demon was cast out at that location. 
So I had the mindset that this place was going to be fine. Um, the demon got cast out in our location. And so at, at most at this place, I thought it might be normal, paranormal activity, lingering okay. for other reasons. Okay, so the demon, I, um, and I'm going to talk about this later on, and I got a question to ask you about being cast, you know, cast out or, or exercised. Now, the demon was apparently exercised at the hospital or back at the home? Well, it's a long story. You know, actually, the boy, the activity started in the suburb of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., um, called Cotty City. And that's where he lived with his father and his mother at the time. And his grandmother lived there. Roland, though, in this case, um, started becoming possessed. That's where that activity started, the scratching on the walls, the, the pictures flying off of the walls. And they brought in a Lutheran priest who tried to help for a while and then referred him to a Catholic priest because the family was Lutheran. And at that time, you know, during this process, the boy ended up having scratching on his chest that said Lewis. And the family took it as a sign that they should take him to St. Louis because that's where the family originated from. The father moved out there to take a job in Washington, D.C. Then they came back to the St. Louis area, and they stayed at this house in St. Louis County, because that's where the boy's aunt and uncle lived and owned. And that's where the actual rites of exorcism began, when Father Balder and Father Bishop, and at that time, seminary student Halloran, came to the house and started that process. And then it was an epic battle with so many weeks back and forth, different locations. But the finalization of the exorcism, the right of exorcism, took place at Alexia Brothers Hospital downtown on Broadway in, in St. Louis City. Okay, now going back to when you guys reopened the case, why was the case reopened? Was it because there was some resi residual haunting going on or... Was it purely just for entertainment, or were individuals curious as to if something was still there? I, I find it fascinating that you would want to open, you know, Pandora's box again potentially, and get caught up in something you really don't want to tap into. That's true. Actually, the intent wasn't to reopen the case or, or specifically that house, the production, the Exorcist file. Um, was doing a documentary of the overall exorcism of 1949, the, the story behind it, the locations behind it, the people involved. So we visited, visited as many of those as we could. And in this case, the producers thought it would be a good idea to conduct a little investigation in this house since no one really from the paranormal has been there, you know, since that time. Were you afraid of kind of opening up uh, Pandora's box again, Greg, and tapping into something or opening up a portal that uh, you just don't want to mess with? Did, did that did that always lurk in the back of your mind somehow? Yeah, like I said, though, at the time, I thought it would be the most blessed house in the city. You know, that's where it suggested this played a role in my mind, saying that nothing was going to happen there. And lo and behold, Pandora's box got open, and I got burned for doing it. Yeah, and and uh, I guess we'll just we'll go there right now. You know, um, 
it, it, it's been said, you know, Christopher Christopher Booth uh, had mentioned that, uh, you know, a cross was uh, burnt on the neck of one of the priests there in St. Louis that was trying to exercise a demon out of this little boy, and they really didn't know what that meant, what that sign meant, but you kind of experienced something similar. Your, your body temperature on the floor, like uh, thermal imaging device, reached up to 200-something degrees, correct? And uh, when it was all said and done, did you have a cross burnt, a white cross burnt on your neck as well? Well, it's kind of, it wasn't my body temperature that hit that height. It was like an anomaly right off of the side of my neck and face. Okay. And I started feeling the heat, you know, intensify. And that's when Keith Age at the time scanned the thermal over and he started picking up that heat anomaly starting off in the 100 degree range and you're right, going up above boiling basically 212 degrees. But after sitting up there for a while and feeling this intense heat, it was kind of odd because we had experimental devices going too. We weren't actually provoking during this investigative session at the time, we were just asking questions. Well, we had the experimental paranormal pop cooked up at the time by Bill Chappell and also an obvious. And they both started at the same time saying odd things. They would say pre-beast, demon, and they were like working in tandem with each other. And then it built up to the point, before I started feeling the heat, it said paranormal investigator burn. Oh, which wow, was no. quite incredible. And it was after that when I started feeling the heat. But the process kept going and going. I stood there as long as I could. And the ironic thing was, like, you know, I do weird things. I carry my medals of protection on me. And I took a business that nothing was going to happen. I don't think I'd bother to get them out and put them on. And I tapped on my chest, and I didn't hear my medals, you know, clank, you know, under my shirt. And I had a funny look on my face, and I turned to someone, and I asked him, Please go to my bag and bring me my medals. Well, they were intercepted and stopped from doing it because that might de- you know, sensationalize the production. So I'm like, well, got the activity to stop. So I stood there as long as I could. And then, like when you're doing filming, I did the, the best thing after I became disorientated, confused, dizzy. My vision was getting affected. It was sort of like the front house effect, you know, with the heat at the same time. I yelled out, crossing, meaning I'm crossing the camera view, walked out of the door and went downstairs, and then eventually went outside. Now, did a cross appear on your neck at all, maybe on the thermal imaging device, or even afterwards? Well, well, when they come down to grab me to analyze my neck, because I took out there too quick, basically, yeah, there was, my neck was burnt, it was very red in the side of my face, and actually had some little white blisters on it at the time. But then in the middle of the redness, they noticed like a sideways white, you know, cross in the middle of it. So to me, that would be an area that really didn't get burned. That would have had less heat, but it still made an image of a cross. Oh, wow. So explain to our listeners real quick. You mentioned the ovulus. For our listeners that do not know what the ovulus is or what it does, could you explain? The ovulus is a device that basically takes environmental readings um, that supposedly the paranormal can manipulate, such as EMF, electromagnetic fields, and also temperature. 
and it takes them to a logarithmic base and formulates words from them phonetically and there's some words in the vocabulary interesting the paranormal and the paranormal puck i talked about is basically the same type of device but it's more advanced and it has like three different EMF, you know, coils that take readings in multi-directions. It takes temperature, it puts up a screen on the computer, besides being able to do it verbal and it documents everything on the computer while also recording all the environmental conditions at the same time. Okay, so it's like an all-in-one. So it's kind of strange how you happen to set up these devices and the words that are said through this device are omitted. Um, is paranormal investigator um, burn? I mean, that that's that's very interesting. Uh, that you just either you happen to be at the right place at the right time, or it was a malfunction. Um, I guess that's all open to interpretation, but uh, very interesting to say the least. Hey, how's it going, Greg? Good to talk with you again. Hey, so yeah, listening to, to you too. Oh, thanks. Listening to talk you talking about all the background you have. How much preparation work goes into doing uh, an investigation like this on a case like this one? Well, you mean the research-wise or preparation for, like, some yeah, section? Yeah, probably a little bit of both. Like, when did when do you start researching that kind of a thing? And then once you have gathered all your information together, what kind of uh, detail work goes into, like, what instruments you bring and that kind of thing? Well, that all varies. In this case, the research behind it went for a long time. This was the case I had a personal interest in for you know, a decade or longer being from the St. Louis area. It's an iconic case, you know, the movie The Exorcist is based off of it. So you want to find out as many facts as you can. And that became overwhelming in this case because it involved so much. Preparation, you know, to go into such a place, that depends on a person's own belief system, their own faith. You know, it depends if they believe in demons, if they're Catholic, if they're Baptist, if they're Hindi, or even pagan or wicked, and they want to anchor in the, their own system of protection and faith, because that will give them psychological empowerment, in my opinion, which sometimes could help protect them as well. It sounds like you actually have to be a little bit of an expert on religion, too, when you do something like this. Well, now if you anchor in your own faith, if you anchor in your own faith and the spiritual belief system, then you have to focus on your own. Right. There's not a catch-all, you know, one standard across the board. Okay. So I'm assuming, Greg, going into this case, you were pretty much prepared. It sounds like you brought some medals. Uh, you were anchored within your own religion. Uh, did you already have in the back of your mind that you were going to possibly go up against a demon when you got there? Or did you think, since this was the most blessed house, probably in the whole uh, state, possibly the whole country, that um, you might not face a demon or anything at all? Yeah, that's the mindset that I had. That this was going to be the most cleansed house. At most, I would face maybe a normal type of spirit if it was lingering around or or like a land spirit, you know, that could wander from, you know, place to place. I did not plan on encountering what happened to me. Did you encounter any other, like, um, I'm assuming you encountered, you encountered a demon, correct? Or at least you think you might have? That, that would be left to the interpretation of the people, you know, who's, you know, who witnessed the investigation, who sees the documentary, you know, that film there. In my opinion, 
yes, it could have been demonic. Okay, and you're, but, with your previous experiences dealing with cases such like this, what are some of the indicators that led you to believe that you, you felt that this was a demonic case? Well, this is the first time I ever felt such intense heat or got burnt on the investigation. That was an eye-opener. As an investigator, you know, one has to be prepared for the unexpected. And in this case, the unexpected was very extreme. Okay, um, did you... Did you encounter any land spirits or any other spirits that were in the house that maybe knew what was going on or why you were there or kind of anything else that hinted to the fact that they knew what happened in this house and they're lingering around? No, there was an EVP captured by, I think, either one of the Booth brothers or Keith or somebody in the house that said a Persian word, I think, of Tindy, which means Lord or Master. And that's up to the interpretation, too. This is the same energy that produced that that burnt me. And then at the same time, another person that you know, too, Jeremy King, you know, was on the team. And it was kind of funny because before this happened to me, I think it was earlier in the day, and he never mentioned it to me, he was with, you know, Dr. Lynch, because Dr. Lynch was there, too. You know, and he was going to, you know, investigate as well. And he had a special multi-frequency IR emitter and stuff and his camera hooked up and Jeremy was playing around with it and asked Dr. Lynch oh can I, can I use that for a minute and he said sure just go, go down to the basement with it you know to keep him out of the way you know of what was going on in other parts of the house and then Jeremy went down there then heard the door shut you know a little bit after him so he assumed that Dr. Lynch was going down in the basement with him and he goes down the steps he gets off to the bottom and he still hears footsteps coming down behind him and so he's playing with Dr. Lynch's you know camera and IR emitters you know doing some filming then he keeps hearing the person that he saw walk behind him and then he even exhale and he was asking some questions thinking it was Dr. Lynch and didn't get an answer and he turned around and realized nobody was down there with him that he could see when you replayed the video, were the questions uh, answered? No. Okay, interesting. Uh, wow, is Dr. Lynch the same? Was he the individual that was just on Ghost Hunters recently here in St. Charles, Missouri? No, that's um, Dr. Henry. Okay, Dr. Henry. oh, that's right, that's right. Dr. Lynch is the one that's with Dave Glover on Paranormal Tuesdays. It's on 97 point whatever FM. Okay, Greg, I have one for you. Why would you possibly want to go into these kind of situations knowing that there's some sort of uh, spirit or demonic uh, image in there for you? Why is it that you actually go in and investigate these kind of things? Well, that's a very good question because there's a lot of people out there that would say myself and others are crazy to doing such. But, however, you know, growing up and even through my period where I served in the United States Navy, I encountered unexplainable things myself. So it sort of started off as a quest of seeking the unknown and finding the answers for myself. And then I got involved in some other situations um, out at the infamous Union House in Union, Missouri, which was on Discovery Show of Haunting. And I became addicted to that place. I first went out there because somebody else was, you know, having like an open paranormal investigator 
night to come out there and try to capture evidence. And so I left the solo, you know, flight I was on and went out there solo. But by the time I became addicted to this location and went out there, you know, a few more times, that's when I became involved in the team setting. And then getting involved in that case also taught me that there's people out there who actually need bona fide and real help with what they're experiencing or, or what they're perceiving to be experiencing. That kind of segues into my next question, Greg. You know, from your personal experiences, and it sounds like you have many of them, can you infer that there actually is something there, you know, something that we can't see, maybe a different realm or dimension? And if so, why Why do you think uh, it exists? Why do you think they're there? Are they trapped or, or are they just – is that what we do when we, you know, die or what is it? Um, do we just linger around? That's a common question, you know, that paranormal investigator gets asked over and over again. You know, what do we think it is? Is it there? I can say one thing for sure. I have experienced on numerous occasions unexplainable activity, various levels, visual, audible, um, environmental, and I know it is real. What it is, I cannot say 100%, you know, backed on. There's a lot of theories and speculation. Some of it probably is disembodied spirits of those who once lived, you know, in the real world. There could be other type of entities or what people would call like land spirits or elemental, you know, type entities out there. Then you have your demonic that people classify. So saying what it is, we don't know. It could be aliens from a different planet down there that we visually can't see. It could be interdimensional beings. You know, the list goes on. Okay, you know, you know, from the Christian standpoint, um, you know, we're we're always told, you know, when someone passes away, they go to heaven or they're in heaven. And and I've always kind of thought that's just something that uh, we all say, myself being a Christian, to make others feel better about themselves and the situation. Um, you know, when my brother recently passed, you know, I kept being told that, oh, you know, he's in a better place now. He's in heaven. I mean, even from the minister, you know, um, he's in heaven now. You know, we don't have to worry. He has a new body. And I often wondered, you know, how can it be? How can, you know, that, you know, that's a theory for, for most people. You know, when you die, you go to heaven or, or whatnot. But how can that be instantaneously? How can that be right away? You know, and you also read in the Bible, if you believe in the Bible, you know, uh, Jesus tells, you know, everyone not to talk to the dead. So you can infer from that that, A, there are living spirits or dead spirits on this earth, you know, and B, we're not supposed to talk to them. So there's something actually there. And I, and I guess it just opens the door to interpretation even, it widens that door even further. Yeah, it does. That's one thing for sure because, you know, like I said, I cannot say what is there. Something is there. Then you have your spiritual belief systems of thousands of different variances, you know, through different peoples and cultures, and the same faith-based systems, and along with scientific rationale that you cannot put a definition on it. In our lifetime, we're probably never going to see, you know, this put into a box with precise definitions that this is this and that is that. Maybe in 2,000 more years, you know, more might be accomplished and people might understand this better. 
Yeah, and I, I always found this topic very fascinating because you know, if, if, if you know Christians, you read your Bibles, you know, it, you're taught that uh, God cast Satan, Lucifer, you know, the, the angel down to heaven and all of his minions, which I guess you can interpret as being uh, demons, you know, uh, other bad angels. And so you can say to yourself as a Christian, okay, A, they're on this earth as well now after reading this. And you also read that scripture in the Bible where it says, Jesus says, do not talk to the dead. So therefore, people who die on this earth must be on this earth somewhere. Um, you must have the capability as humans. You have that capability to speak to the dead. I mean, um, so we do have that power. Uh, that's my belief to talk to the dead. But then yet we're commanded not to. So it's just I find the topic very uh intriguing thought-provoking and i guess it's something for you know if you have faith that is just something that you will learn when you uh pass away yourself i i can only assume that all my questions will be answered hopefully that that's what faith is right all right that's true so great getting back to uh the exorcism in this case uh, that happened back in 1949 and you guys kind of went back and uh went into the house to see what was going on um I have to ask you again, you know, how did you get approached? You know, I mean, did you receive that phone call and were you hand selected to take on this task with some other individuals to to bring this uh, to light again? Okay, are you talking about the movie's Exorcist file or are you talking about the production that's going to happen Friday? The Exorcist file. Okay. Well, on the Exorcist file, we were already working with these producers. Um, we were also featured in Children of the Grave. That's the one that aired on by Fine Shore. So we already had a familiarity of the Booth Brothers, and they saw how much research we have done on this Exorcist case that they took a big interest in it. And basically one thing led to another, and they came back to St. Louis, and we were involved with them again. Okay, and for our listening audience who do not know what the Children of the Grave is, could you kind of just elaborate just a little bit, digress a little bit on that? Well, Children of the Grave is another paranormal documentary that the Booth Brothers put out. I forget, I think about 2006 or 7, that, the, you know, my memory eludes me on the exact year, but it basically features locations with spirit children involved, and we didn't work on all the segments of the documentary, we worked on the segments um, here in St. Louis, Zombie Road was one segment, and then down in Springfield, Missouri, the Pacific and Castle was another segment. But they did have a couple other segments in there of other locations that did not involve us. Okay, um, so let's get back. I kind of digressed a little bit there. Um, thank you for for uh, adding to that. I appreciate it. So let's get back to the case, um, to the files. And uh, you said that uh, there were some EVPs, and uh, there was an you know EVP that was captured in Persian. Um, Besides the, the the paranormal puck and the ovulus and what was captured on recordings with the Persian languages, is there anything else that was caught besides what you had mentioned already, uh, other strange EVPs that came from that investigation that night? Uh, not really. There was some, what we had, you know, I think EVPs that caught some type of 
like distant scream. And that didn't come, it didn't come from outside the house, it came from in the house somewhere. And other than that, basic stuff like, you know, breathing noises and stuff that could be, we could speculate, have more or less explainable causes to. Did you capture any actual video uh, footage or photography or any pictures that were snapped that showed, you know, an orb or a ghostly image or an apparition or anything? Well, orbs, I'm not a big orb man. You know, because in my mind, 99.9% of orbs on video or photographs are explainable. You know, via moisture, dust, another particular matter, insects. And other than that, you know, really not much else. And I'm you know, sure, go, I'm sure this house was filled with dust and insects. I'm sure this house has not been opened that much since 1949. I wouldn't go in there. No, it, well, it's actually a residence. Really? Someone lives there? Yes. Oh my, okay. I, I assumed this was like a house that was boarded up or condemned or or no one just touched the house. Are you kidding me? So this place is still uh, – so people uh, still yeah. live there. Oh, my gosh. Do yeah. they do they claim of seeing or hearing anything? W- what about their testimony? Or I'm sure you interviewed them. My, my gosh, that opens up a whole another door here um, to, for our tonight's discussion. Uh, what did you get from them? Well, actually, the person who owns it, I'll say his first name, is the same as yours, it's Nick. Okay, um, all right, we have a connection. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe so, but he's actually a very nice guy. Um, he, When people go out and say that sometimes, you know, a house picks its owner, I think in this case, he picked a house, and he's the right owner for this house. Um, he's... A few things he mentioned that would happen, like odd noises, maybe a disembodied, you know, would sound like a voice once in a while or that, but he doesn't pay attention to it. He basically dismisses it as being explainable or nonsense, and it has no effect on him. Wow, we, uh, we got it. That's amazing. You know, you bring up unexplainable noises and things like that. We got to get you into my place and my in-laws' uh, house. You know, I'm going to digress here just a little bit, get off topic. But uh, it, it, you know, our, our home here in St. Charles, Missouri, um, actually St. Peter's, uh, when my wife and I first bought the home, uh, the very first night that we lived here, I had just the craziest dreams. Uh, and I remember telling my wife the following day it was the very first night that we slept in this house. Uh, that uh, this person, uh, very vivid uh, um, in my dream, was kind of like telling me to, to get out or us to get out. And I just remember waking up the next morning thinking, oh my gosh, this felt so real that someone's telling us to get out of here. But I, uh, since then, my wife and I and my son, who's only four years old, when we are downstairs on the lower level, we live in a quad home, so there's like four separate levels. But we're on the main level, you know, upstairs, we will hear footsteps of people walking across the house. And we've had various people over from work, other teacher friends, and have eaten dinner with us or just, you know, just hang out and whatever it may be, watch movies. And everyone that comes over here, they all ask the same question, who's upstairs? And we reply, no one. And it's just footsteps that we hear constantly, you know, in my child's room, room when I'm laying down with him. At night, I will often hear uh, in the corner, walking along the side with by his dresser, somebody walking. And I've always just dismissed it. I didn't let it bother me. Um, 
But I always thought it was odd. You know, this morning my wife and I were getting ready uh, for work, and my kids' uh, tub of toys, it's a its a stack of, like, Rubbermaid containers with drawers that, that pull out, and you can put toys in it. It's never fallen at, at all, ever, since we've had it. We've had it for a very long time. Well, this morning um, we heard this noise, this big, loud crash, and his box of toys had tipped over and everything had spewed out all over the place and this is a box that was up against a wall in the corner of the house so it had two walls that were you know kind of that it was flush to or up against and it tipped over and i just found it odd it was very strange sounds like you might have something going on there yeah it's kind of it's kind of weird my wife who doesn't believe in this stuff at all um, will even say, you know, she hears things, and sometimes she is scared. She's she's scared to sleep in our house when I leave for Drew weekend on the weekends to go to Whiteman. Now at my father-in-law's house, they swear up and down that uh, um, they have something at their house, and they blame us because they believe that we had something attached to our furniture. This is a, a kind of a strange story. When we 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 lived with them for two years in their house before we bought purchased a home and. They ended up, I don't know why this happened, Greg, but they ended up taking our furniture for their bedroom. I think it was just easier at the time to move everything, so they took our furniture in their new home when they purchased a new home, and we stayed in their old house until it was sold, but we kept their furniture. I don't know why it happened like that. It just did. I know it sounds awkward, people out there, but that's what happened. But remember when we had that earthquake about six or seven years ago? I think so. Okay. Um. My father-in-law swears up and down right before the earthquake started. Something woke him up, and uh, he looked over, and there was a little girl looking at him right into his face saying, Help me. And then, help me, I'm scared. And then the earthquake happened, like, within seconds after that. And he scared the bejesus out of him. Now, I have witnessed things myself over at that house when uh, I've slept over at the house um, the, the dimmer, the light dimmer will slowly go on and I've heard somebody walk in the kitchen and, and open up the refrigerator and shut it and I would swear that it was my father-in-law that, that walked in there but he will tell me it wasn't and I'm like, oh dude, you're just messing around with me or someone was sleepwalking or whatnot. just very crazy my son won't even go into the spare bedroom because he swears that he sees something, there's something in there he will not go in there by himself he won't sleep over at their house anymore because something spooked him, and he, he will not go over there and stay over there. My father-in-law swears there's something there. My wife even swears, and she now again, she doesn't believe in this stuff. She swears there's something over there as well, so uh, just kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like you, you have access to a couple of extra places. And so we You're recently, or you know, we got our furniture back, and now it's in our new home, so we got our original furniture back. And my father-in-law swears up and down it's the furniture that was possessed. <laughs> so it's just been a joke between both of us. He he blames me for bringing something over to his house and then makes fun of me for currently having something here. Well, it's not a joke. It depends on, you know, the origins of the furniture or, or an item. And an item that was once very sentimental to someone else in real life can become the center of awning. Oh, okay. Okay. I didn't know that. Um Interesting. So, All right, yeah. so so yeah. I kind of digressed there a little bit. Let's get back to your case, you know. So when you 
when you were going back to the house where the exorcism took place, now I'm not talking about what's happening this Friday. I'm talking about when you kind of you went back in, in 2009, I believe is what you said. Um, did you think that you knew something bad was there? You knew a demonic uh, entity was there, but did, did you by any chance that it run across your mind that you thought maybe the devil was there? I actually joked about that, you know, at times. Uh, I would call it the, you know, the house. I would, you know, like joke around saying, welcome to where Satan slept in 1949. Okay. <laughs> so, but it did cross my mind in a joking manner, but then I learned that some things are best not to joke about. Right, because it, it, it just might happen. Right. Our, um, I, I had heard that there are some diaries attached to this case that uh, some of the original priests or one of the priests wrote a diary uh, with di- daily entries of what had happened uh, every single day uh, back in 1949. Is there a, a diary that actually exists? And, and I've caught wind that there's actually six of them. There's been some copies. Well, there's actually multiple types of diaries. Um, the most common one that people refer to as the diary is actually a self-diary that Father Bishop in the case uh, kept, and he put it in one of the drawers in the boys' room at Alexian Brothers. And then when they tore down that wing, um, the workers going through, you know, the check rooms and that, found the diary sitting in a drawer. And he took that one out, and that's the one I think that Vladdy, you know, received a copy of, and based, you know, the theme for the movie The Exorcist from. But however, at the same time, there's another diary that was kept that no one has access to except if you're a Jesuit priest or, or you're in the Vatican, is the main one. And that, that was one that consisted of a, a giant, you know, like ledger type book that they would document the daily activities every day and have every witness and every priest in Bernal for the day sign off on. So there's two copies of that from my understanding. There's a copy of it here in the in the Jesuit Museum in St. Louis or the archives. And there's one in the Vatican. I'm not sure which one's the real one, which one's the copy one. But I know a couple of people who went to the Jesuit, you know, museum or archive here in they got to see a glimpse of it, and maybe it would open up a page of it and show the person. And oh, that, wow. that, that's to prove it does exist. Exactly. I'll so just like, bring up a good point. I was just going to say that, you know, if the Vatican has a copy of it and they have one there and, you know, in that church in, in St. Louis, that proves that, you know, the the Catholic faith, or, you know, even the Vatican recognizes this case as if it actually did happen, which is rare, correct? Right. I mean, that's, that's rare, yes, but, you know, it leaked out publicly, and it made all the headlines back then, and I think 1949 started hitting the papers. There was someone, I, you know, back in the day, back in 49, that leaked it out, and it had to come from the East Coast because it leaked it out in some of the press before they came to St. Louis. So that could have been another reason based on moving, you know, the boy to St. Louis to the right of exorcism as well. Greg, before you went to the house in 2009, did you get a chance to read that diary? Oh, yes. I went through the, the one that they found in the drawer, you know, inside the Luxembourg Brothers, Father for Bishops. And it was very interesting and scary at the same time. 
what did you find most disturbing uh, about the diary? Was there a page, you know, you're skimming through the diary, you hit that page, and you're like, wow. There's just so much in there, you know. The, the fact the the boy receiving whelps on his body that would make words or symbols or scratch just when he didn't touch him himself. Levitation of the bed in, in front of the priest. Uh, you know, which in those days, you know, it was a big metal bed. It was a heavy one. Um, big pieces of furniture moved. And, uh, just the foulness that the boy, you know, went into. Like, there was a part in there when he actually stood up in the bed and urinated at the priest. There's oh, no wow. green pea soup like the movie in this one. But, yeah, he actually urinated at the priest. So, it was very enlightening and scary at the same time. Where they found Father Bishop's um, diary in the notes was actually in the psychiatric um, wing at Alexian Brothers Hospital, the one they tore down in the 70s. Okay. Now, did they put some of the furniture in that hospital from the home, or was that, am I thinking of something else, where some of the furniture from the exorcism home went to um, a nursing home, and that's where I'm confusing the stories? Oh, yeah, you're getting the furniture is a story in itself, and that's something we tried to research. And we found basically like two, you know, avenues for the potential furniture. The furniture was in the Alexian Brothers' wing in the room that was sealed up. Actually, the whole floor was sealed. And then the furniture went down to the main part of Alexian Brothers in the basement into a storage area. And eventually, I think back in the 80s or that, they called a moving company to come, you know, this is one story, to move to the furniture. And the moving company, we actually talked to the mover who did this, took the furniture and took it to a secure location. He called it like deep storage where a place pays, you know, for decades at a time and then they have to seal it in a vault and then put it in like a warehouse setting. And then it moved from one to another to another. And I think we tracked it over by Scott Air Force Base in Illinois somewhere is where the last supposedly was. But then there's another story with the furniture. You know, it got removed from the room when they got rid of all the furniture and then, you know, someone came and moved all the furniture to a nursing home down in the South City. It was the Grand Manor Nursing Home. And that sits where a Schnook's um, grocery store sits now, right by Grand and Gravoy. And then all the furniture went to that place and then they tore that one down, I want to say in the 80s. And then there were stories, you know, about the haunted room, the fourth floor where the furniture was kept. Um, somebody broke their leg, one of the um, workers there, or nurses, you know, just getting off the elevator on that floor one time. On the wrecking ball, you know, the guy told us that he actually had a priest bless the wrecking ball and ride, you know, the wrecking machine, I forget what they call those you know, why he was doing it. And the first couple of times he swung at the building, it didn't even penetrate the wall whatsoever. It took like extra force and that over the normal, you know, demolition force that he would use. So was it true so, with the stories? Uh, you know, um, you just confirmed that, yeah, it, you tracked it to Whiteman Air Force Base, or not Whiteman, excuse me, um, Scott Air Force Base, just right outside Missouri. 
Um, I had always heard that myself, and so it's very interesting that you actually researched that and, and tra- traced it to Scott Air Force Base. Now, with the wrecking ball being blessed, is it true that it did knock down most of the building, but until it came to the room where the furniture was stored, that's when the wrecking ball started bouncing off the wall? That's what I've heard, too, and that's what the, the record, you know, sort of implied with us that he remembered. So the furniture is an interesting story in itself. But when you research an iconic legend type of event like this, you want to research all angles and see what you can uncover and find out. There's even at time, I actually almost thought I had it, that I tracked down the door from the room. You know, getting back to the diary, apparently there are six copies, correct? That I'm not sure on. Okay. You know, on you're talking about Father Bishop's diary. Correct. You know, I think every who found that and sent it to whoever, there are so many copies made and distributed. But now you can find, you know, that the diary on the internet. You can find Correct. it. I think there's DVD um, concerning the Exorcist story by Thomas Allen. I think that's, I forget what the, you know, movie's called, but there's a diary on that DVD as well, on the extras. Well, pre-internet, you know, with the copies being made, I found it very interesting that, you know, the number was six. You know, seven is the holy number, and six is the number of uh, Satan. And I just found that very fascinating. I know, in a weird way. (laughs) Call me crazy. Yeah, the whole story is fascinating. And what a lot of people don't realize with the boy involved in that, I think he turned 80 last year or this year. But he's still alive. He's actually retired. He's a retired rocket scientist. He worked for NASA. Yeah, and he doesn't remember anything, correct? Like, not a not a lick of this whole event. That's what he says, and he doesn't really communicate with his family too much either. I even talk to people close to him in his family, and they hardly ever hear from him. He never talks about this issue with them. He claims that he does not remember. However, his first son is named Michael after St. Michael. Hmm, very interesting. So let's fast forward. Let's talk about this Friday. Now, this Friday, you have a pretty important event. Can you tell our listeners what you are doing this Friday? Oh, this Friday is going to be an amazing event. It's going to be going back to this infamous house again, the house where the devil slept in 1949 in St. Louis County, and it's an event that the new channel, Destination America, is putting out. Basically, it's going to be a two-hour live special on TV. It's called Exorcism Live. So that's from Friday, October 30th at 8 p.m. Central Time. And so people can literally watch this unravel live. Like this Friday, people can turn on the televisions, go to Destination America, right, and watch this. Yes. But what's happening is the first half of the show is basically going to divulge the history of the story, like what we're talking about somewhat, the history of the house, the past occurrences there, and so forth. And then they're going to have a team from Destination America that's on the show um, Ghost Asylum, they're the Tennessee Rave Chasers. They're going to be doing a small investigation there to see what type of evidence they can capture on their own. Sweet. So if Dave and I show up and start jumping up and down on our cars, we might possibly be on national 
television live. Awesome. You might, but from my understanding, um, the the town area where this is located is already aware of this, and there's going to be streets sealed and off with the police at the street to keep the public from coming in. Oh, I'm sure, so, and I'm sure, and you're probably going to have to uh, discern clearly when they're you know doing another investigation noises that are coming from outside because i'm sure people are going to want to mess with you guys being live for the very first time in history uh especially with this case at at this specific house right and then like i was saying after the investigation or during the investigation the destination of america website they're going to have certain cameras in the house that are going to feed out live to their website on the stream and that's for viewers of the show, if they want to watch some of the cameras at the same time, they could watch them and give like little note inputs. I think it could be, you know, like a chat thing or that there, like if they see something unexplainable occur, maybe in a room where no humans are. That's with the public as well. That is sweet. Are you going to, are there going to be body, like you're going to have a body cam on? Are you going to have a body cam on? I don't know. I, I probably will not go in the house. I'll be outside the house. You know, I don't blame you. With with the incident that you had last time, I wouldn't even... Well, first off, I probably wouldn't even go inside the house. But if I had anything remotely happen to me, like what happened to you, I wouldn't be caught 10 blocks from that place. So I don't blame you at I'm all. And I'm going to be sure to have my protection this time, my personal protection. So I'm going to be safe as I can. And plus... Who will be there on the um, on the second part of the special? They're gonna have um, Bishop James Long, who is in Kentucky, you know, come come in, and he's gonna go through the place with Chip Coffee, which is a, a famous you know psychic medium that a lot of your viewers that watch paranormal shows seen him on Paranormal State, Psychic Children, and then several others. And they're going to go through and perform, I think, what's called a minor rite of exorcism on the property itself. So this isn't going to be a live exorcism of a person. It's going to be the minor rite of exorcism on the actual property to possibly expel any lingering residual demonic energy or, you know, entities that still are attached to that location. Outstanding. So even chip coffee is being brought in. That's when you know this is a pretty big production. When you have big players named, you know, like that, like like Chip Coffee, who's been on some really well-known paranormal television uh, series. And even if you're not a fan of the paranormal, I think uh, maybe I think a handful of people have probably heard of that name before because he's been all over television and all over radio. So that's that's pretty big. Yeah, that's weird going to be a big production and it's going to be very interesting you know people they might say oh you, you know exorcism i think people are under the impression that they're going to have an exorcism of a person there but they're not well that's what they're kind of advertising I, I will admit they're hyping this up and rightfully so because they want people to watch this this is the very first time in american history that uh they're actually going to the exorcist house live and it's going to be a pretty big event just like you said what are you expecting out of this it's a hard topic. It's it's one of them things, you know, like my mindset going in the first time, you know, that produced activity, but all of these people going knows what happened to me in the past. So I imagine they're going to go in a lot more cautious and prepared than what I was. Do you think they're going to provoke and, anything? 
On purpose. I would hope not. Okay. I would hope because if they go provoking, yeah, they're gonna get something bad out of Pandora's box. I could just see, you know, this being a live event. They really want, you know, they're already hyping this up, making it sound like they're actually gonna perform a live exorcism. But you know, you want to keep the uh, viewers entertained and tuned in. You don't want them switching to another channel, especially since the World Series is going on. Um, you know, <laughs> right now this week. Uh, they want something. I can only assume they would want something to keep the viewers' attention. I would hope that they would not go around and open Pandora's box and provoke. Well, just the fact that somebody be able to watch and see live from inside this house, this icon, and learning more about the history. And no telling what other history they uncovered. No telling what special appearances they could have. They could have something from one of the family members. They could have something from the boy about himself. But nothing is disclosed at that level, you know, to myself or others yet. It'd so be, it could be a exciting thing. It would be very interesting if the boy tuned into this and watched. Um, I'm sure it'd be very oh, yeah. moving for him. Oh, it would. And actually, you know, I've talked to his ex-daughter-in-law quite a bit. So that's how close I made it to him. I could come across the hurdle that actually talked to him. Okay, you know, there's a theory out there, Greg, that when, um, just like praying, you know, when you have, when you like a prayer chain or a prayer request at a church, when you have enough people praying, it just seems to, more so than none, that whatever you're praying about because you need help, things always turn out okay, or someone who's sick gets suddenly gets better uh, for no apparent reason, but we know that maybe a lot of people prayed for that individual, and a lot of people were thinking about that individual really hard and praying for them. Uh, I could see, you know, there's a theory out there, you know, that uh, when you put, when a lot of people put their mind to something, they can manifest something out of, out of nothing because you're using that energy. Uh, and I can just see, you know, millions and millions and millions of people are going to be watching this, hopefully. Um, like I said, it's the first live event ever in America, and I'm sure it'll probably be broadcasted somewhere overseas as well. When you have so many people watching this event, do you ever think to yourself, wow, so many people are watching this, they want something to happen that just by people thinking about this and everyone's, uh, I guess, brain power uh, all put into one room that they could actually manifest something that isn't there? Yeah, I, actually, I was thinking that while you were talking, that people's psychic kinetic energy, if it all connects and they're all suggestive, like, ooh, the house, the demon, no telling what that could produce at the same time. Yeah, because there's a theory out there, you know, that uh, this sort of goes with, like, poltergeist activity are actually manipulating those objects and making them move because of their energy. Um, this kind of lends itself to the same theory i would almost feel i don't know i'm not an expert at this i don't know if there are experts at this i'm sure everyone's practicing but it, it, you know i can't help but think that myself greg that if you have so many people thinking about this topic and they're wanting to see something that they might actually create something that's not there and accidentally open up something yeah that's true and i agree with you that there are no experts i you know i hate it when people term like you know have me somewhere and call me an expert that's by that's not truthful at all. The only thing I am and I consider others is basically an explorer of the unknown seeking answers. Okay. Um, so, you know, we got this case happening this Friday. It's on um, Destination America, so tune in. You said it's at uh, 8 o'clock, correct, Central Standard Time? Correct. 
Okay, so look at your cable provider, um, you know, your, your satellite provider, and definitely tune into that and watch this. Again, it's the very first live event ever taking place at the Exorcist House there in St. Louis. Now, Greg, uh, with all of this said, in your case, when you went back in 2009 and opened it up, and then now you're going back, obviously, Friday to see what happens. Let's go to some of your other cases around the Missouri area. You've had a lot of cases here in Missouri and areas that uh, have been haunted that your team, you and your team, have been called to. And I just wanted you to kind of, you know, here in the, in the last um, little while that we have you, if you don't mind hanging on for just for a little bit, I would like you to go into the Missouri Task Force and your organization and what it is that you do and your mission, if that's okay, and kind of explain uh, some of your experiences. Do you have time to keep going on? Oh, yeah, I have time, but before we jump to that, I just want to do a request, if I could, to your listeners. Okay, what that, is it? That if they could keep me in their prayers to make sure I'm safe. Even though I'm not going in the house, um, a window pane, a wall is not going to keep a supposed demonic entity from reaching out. You know, I, I completely They're agree, not. and I think if all of us put our prayers together, uh, we all can definitely form that wall for you. I appreciate that very much. Sir. Yeah, no problem. Um, you know, that's the least we can do for you. But I know you had a pretty big scare last time, and and if I were in your shoes, I would want prayers myself because you're tapping in, you're going into something that's unknown. You're you're not knowing what to expect. You can only assume it would it would be just as worse going going into this next time than what you experienced the last. Uh, so yeah, that's the least that we can do that Dave and I can do, and, and everyone that is listening. So listeners, definitely. Take time out as you're listening to this right now. Hit pause and just say a little prayer for Greg because he's definitely going to need it. You know, he's going to a place that not many of us would even venture into. And so it's a brave individual and he's um, going to need it. So, yes, we definitely will. Thank you, uh, Greg. So let's get and into I don't want to be stingy. If they want a prayer or, you know, give prayers to the other ones involved, too, that's fine. Okay, definitely. <laughs> I don't want to sound like I want to be a prayer hog. Oh, you're being stingy, man. <laughs> so tell us about your organization, basically your mission statement, what it is you do, and um, your task force, and some of the cases you've been involved with. Basically, um, paranormal task force. In a nutshell, we're a paranormal, or we're a nonprofit organization based in Missouri, in the St. Louis area, and we provide various types of paranormal assistance to those who are in need. That can range from a simple client uh, experiencing or purportedly experiencing unexplainable activity all the way to educating groups, um, working with other groups. And we also focus on historical preservation, which is very important to us as well, to preserve our history. And we try to bring that into the mix all the time, especially with our educational you know, lectures, seminars, and workshops. Yeah, I was just going to say, you provide, you know, educational uh, classes as well, like you just said, lectures and workshops um, for the community. Um, so, yeah, so right. what are some of the cases that you've been called to? Oh, there's just so many. It's like a, God, it's such a, a large assortment to choose from. Um, okay, so let's, let's oh, narrow it a little bit. Um I guess what has been uh, what have been the most intriguing cases to you? Maybe not necessarily the the scariest. Um, I would find it fascinating. 
just to kind of I, – I always like to decode things, figure out reasons, ask why, the why questions, rationale. So I guess what has been – what has been the most intriguing case or maybe a case that has left answers still open and could be interpreted uh, whatever which way by different people? Um, let's start there. Well, well, one of them, I'm, I've had to jump on Zombie Road. Okay, the yes. The urban area in St. Louis County, out in the wild woods area, cool area now. Because that case, you know, first came to us in 2006, we were going to explore an urban legend in most urban legends, you could find reason for development of certain stories and that. And we did write off a lot of the, you know, the stories like an evil witch used to live down there and like slaughter stray kids in the woods and leave their <laughs> bones outside and, you know, some things like that. But when we first went down there and investigated, this is a place where it became that the truth is much stranger than fiction. We encountered every type of paranormal activity probably known down there. And it would vary different investigations, different times. We would see full-fledged, you know, human-like apparitions, shadow people, um, uh, spook lights, you know, through the wooded areas, disembodied voices, other disembodied sounds footsteps following you closely without, you know, nothing there, not even no wildlife. And the list goes on and on. Now, I, so I would assume very... with the EVPs you collect, um, just like everyone, you know, you and I speak with different tones, um, have, and it, with EVPs, for our listeners, um, I'm sure you have male and female voices and various tones, correct? Right. Okay, so, and we various might pitches. Want to know what yeah, we might want to let them know what EVP is, too. That's electronic voice phenomena. Okay. Um, have you ever found um, a series of cases where you start recording maybe to where you can kind of conclude that, hey, I think this may be the same spirit at all these cases, so maybe you can uh, come to the conclusion that maybe something is attached to one of our team members or following us? Because I would, I would have to think no, that, you know? Yeah, I thought of that, you know, potential before, but um, voices we capture differ per location, not the same voice comes through, you know, at each location. And some of the voices we capture are louder than the human voices around them, you know, recorded on the same recorder, you know, earlier. You know, some of these voices, you know, come out very loud and distinctively clear. But then at other times you can have unintelligible, you know, like mumbling or, or ones that are very difficult to make out in your mind, you know, could be suggestive to uh, make anything out of it. But at the same time, those are still EVPs that are unexplainable if you have all your sounds documented in the area. And that's why when I do EVP, you know, I document every little thing. If I step on a stick, if I... Ex, you know, if I exhale too loud, and my stomach growls. You know, it's, it's taking clear and concise notes on your audio at the same time while doing the sessions. Okay, and um, so what are some other cases that you've been involved in um, in the St. Louis area that are not St. Louis, excuse me, just the Missouri area that were pretty uh, top-notch cases for you? Well, we're going to link back to the, something related to the exorcist again. The exorcist okay. Okay. There's a place in Normandy 
that not too many people know about. It's the St. Vincent's Insane Asylum, which has now since been converted, I think, in the 80s or 90s to Castle Park Apartments for low-income people. It's a magnificent building. It's six stories in some places. You know, it's a very historic built in the late 1800s. And at the time, it was a top, you know, the state of art, you know, psychiatric facility, you know, the Catholics had. Now, this building is basically through the back roads of that, a mile and a half away from the house we're going to. And even though it's not mentioned in the diaries, this is a common sense point of where the boy would have went for diagnostic testing. Because the Catholics do not perform an exorcism this based on events. They rule out exploitable causes as well, like we do. They'll do psychiatric testing, they'll do physical testing, and so forth, to make sure that it's unexplainable. And we were called in by an old manager there, who actually, back in the day, I think 2004, actually met Father Howerin, which was part of, you know, the trio on the main core of the exorcism case. He was a seminary student at times and assisted him, like their muscle and their assistants. And he visited there before, the, so the apartments did open in the 2000s then, or right around that time, because he visited before, I think it was fully open, and he wanted to go up to the fifth floor in this building and see how it still was, and, and opened up and told this manager stories about how the boy did come here and stay at times to undergo testing. And the boy there would actually find a way to get up on the elevator from the sixth floor access, right on top of the elevator, down and up, screaming and yelling, um, get out of his room somehow, and they would find him. They used to have, like, it's like a big, giant grandfather clock in the lobby that was, like, three stories high. He would get in there and climb around. So, you know, this is realistic because I did background checks. And at that same time, she said she met him. He was actually coming back from Arizona on a trip where he went there, going back up to Wisconsin, where he stayed at the time. So this all validated and checked out. But then she experienced other things there. She, and when people moved in, they experienced various apparitions, various paranormal activity. And so we got involved, and she let us come in undercover, not letting the tenants know what we were doing, but we actually conducted a few investigations in there. And that's one of the few places like Zombie Road. We saw multiple type of apparitions and other multiple activity, you know, with disembodied voices, EVP, and so forth. But that place was amazing and very creepy at the same time. Yeah, I was going to ask you, at any point with your cases, the various cases, you know, you've been doing this for quite a while now. Did you ever, I was going to ask that, freak out or feel uneasy or uncomfortable or maybe, you know, besides the exorcism house, we know what happened there. Before that, you know, pre-exorcism house in 2009, was there any other case that you just felt creeped out and you had to leave? Never had to leave. I wanted to leave, but I was too intrigued and too embedded in, you know, capturing evidence and maybe finding potential answers. Uh, but the Union House in Union, Missouri, that I talked about earlier, 
that was one of those type of places that was very intriguing at the same time very fearful you know I at times felt like I think you tossed it out a window at any second okay at you know, um, any case you know going in I'm sure you have lots of questions and you're looking for answers have you ever left a case with more questions than going into yes that happens at times when you know even on private cases what we're doing for a client we come up with more than what they're experiencing and that makes it difficult because we don't want to sensationalize or scare you know the client involved so that's where we have to meticulously align resources to try to help them in the situation but there there are times that you come out with yeah more questions than, than what you started do you feel at times maybe that you and your team are actually bringing more to the case than what is initially there, or maybe there's nothing there at all, and um, you, you guys are kind of just opening up that door because it's just something that you do, and you're so in tuned into doing what you love to do, and maybe you're uh, manifesting or creating uh, things out of thin air? That is, that is a potential, and I have thought of that before, because... We go to the location and we have equipment and somebody can interact with it or leave a message. They're going to be intrigued at the same time, you know, on the other side of the veil. And they might try to get out communications better or manifest more, you know, to get our attention since we're paying attention to them. Okay. Does, um, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it totally that? makes sense. Um you know, you guys uh, went back uh, and forth to a place, um, the Tri-County uh, Truck Stop, correct? Is that what it's called? Oh, oh yes. Okay, and you encountered started. a lot of stuff there. Can you tell our listeners some of the creepy stuff that you encountered at that location? Oh, man, that started back in 2006 as well. We were called in because prior to the restaurant and her patrons at the time were experiencing various levels of activity. Um, the waitresses would experience stuff, levitating in the kitchen, stuff going on and all. Um, shadow figures moving back and forth, doors being held shut on them. Um, patrons would experience something playing with their hair while they were sitting down to eat, like a finger swirling around in their hair. Uh, um, salt, salt and pepper shakers sometimes would levitate from one table to another, sugar packets. Um, you know, the employees would clean up and stack the chairs before, you know, they stayed open 24 hours again and, and put them on the table, you know, upside down and come back again the next morning and find them all back on the floor right side up. The list goes on, but what the kicker was that got us involved quickly was that children go into the restroom and their way going up to the second floor. They started coming back screaming and yelling, crying, and saying that they would see a monster on the stairs killing a lady. Oh my. And that's the first time we investigated in 2006, we show up at this restaurant. Why they're still open to patronize it to get the feeling, you know, to observe with people eating there, the waitresses working. And we're all sitting at a round table off of, you know, the side from the waitress, you know, bar, you know, area and their walkway in back of it. And half of us were sitting there looking, no waitresses around, and about a, a quarter full coffee pot 
comes off of the burner and levitates in the waitress's walking aisle, and then after about a half second or second, releases and crashes on the floor. That's how we were greeted in that place. This was an eye-opener. Then we're, later on, we're setting up on with Terry Gamble from the team, and me and him are setting up, you know, old-fashioned um, video cameras with, you know, the infrared lights and that, so... He's trying to adjust the lighting and that on the camera, so we have the lights off, and he has me go and shut the maintenance door going out to the little hallway on the second floor. And at that time, Tom Halstead was with us, and he left the room. So I'm holding the door shut while Terry's got his video recorder recording, and he's trying to adjust it, and all of a sudden, somebody starts pulling on the other side of the door trying to open it. And I'm just thinking the same thing as Terry was, and we're thinking Tom is on the other side trying to come back in. So I yell through the door, wait a minute, Tom, we're setting up, you know, the cameras. And no words came back, and somebody just kept jerking at the door and kept trying to pull it open. I was playing tug-of-war with him. And then Terry gets the camera set, and the tugging stopped on the door, and I opened the door, stuck my head out, and... Then Sandy from the team was like a room or two down up there. And I yelled, who was by the door? Was Tom up there? And, and she said, no, Tom was down in the bathroom. And that's the area where waitresses reported that something would hold the door shut on them. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, I just did to the spirit what the spirit did to the employees there. Right. Interesting. But, but then, but then that same night, I mean, this leads one jumps to another and another. We're down in the basement, four of us investigating, and no one else is in the basement. The basement is big enough there to be a roller skating rink. And all of a sudden, an incandescent light bulb, you know, comes flying over our heads and crashes to the floor about 20 to 30 foot in front of us. And, you know, standing sideways, one person wasn't time to actually see the light bulb come distance from the back of the basement. And there was nobody back there. And besides that, light bulb blowing up on the floor, it shocks the hell out of you or the heck out of you. And at that time, Tom was uh, started freaking out because there was a rusty butcher knife in the old cooler in the basement that hasn't been used for decades, an old one. And it was real rusty, and he goes, oh, my God, if it's throwing a light bulb at us, it could throw a knife at us. Well, luckily that night, it did not happen. You know, not with the knife yet. But luckily that night, that did not happen. Um, the knife being thrown waited until about a week or so later when a journalist actually came from the daytime with Tom and someone else from the team to write a story about this location. She goes up to the second floor with them, and unexplainably, all the doors up there start rattling, like an, like an earthquake was caused, but no earthquake or no seismic activity happened during that time. And so she's freaking out, you know, the reporter, in those daytime this happens. So then they're down in the basement, and they're explaining something else that occurred earlier with the light bulb and a couple of other things. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, that rusty knife comes flying across the basement and hits a, a vent duct by him and the tip breaks off and bounces about 10 foot back. And you know, it all freaked out. She, the reporter says she's never going to cover another paranormal story again. She was fully skeptic when she went there and a full believer when she left.
and it goes on and on, and especially the infamous um, blue ghost capture um, that was on a different investigation. And myself and part of the team were to go to the second floor and we were going to do an interactive session with EVP and stuff. And so I told Terry and Tom and the rest of them just to go mobile, like on the first floor in the basement while we're up there. Well, Terry and Tom get an idea like, well, we want to go across the street and check out an old, you know, foundation and basement of an old building that used to exist over there. So they take all their equipment to the basement and they set it up stationary. And even Tom, you know, uses, you know, camera, his digital camera and put it in video mode and put it on a tripod. And Terry put his um, motion detectors by each door and they go across there and, and they're doing their stuff. And we're upstairs and I thought they were still down there. And then, you know, I got bored from being up there, come walk around. And, you know, no one was around, except I think another investigator here was still on the first floor. And then they, you know, freaked out, started yelling ghost or something. And then at the same time, his motion alarm series in the basement started going off. And I think they heard him across the street and they came over here. But one of the investigators on the first floor saw this blue apparition come down the kitchen go into a stainless steel prep table and then descend through the floor, which would be the basement below. And that's when the motion detectors went off shortly after that. Then Tom and that got down there, his camera was stopped. And so he backed it up to play the last, you know, little clip before it stopped. And that's where the blue anomaly was caught on video. Wow, very interesting. And scary at the same time. Now, have you ever felt like anything uh, followed you home? Yeah, that's, you know, there's a lot of risk to investigating and diving into the paranormal. It comes with various risk at times, and there's been times where, yeah, something did follow me home. Okay, and how do you rid of that? Well, you just anchor into your favorite belief system and... You know, I hope it goes away after doing so, or if not, you know, just communicate loudly that they're not welcome here, you know, please leave, and sometimes that works. Okay, and I guess and I if guess it doesn't, then uh, you call on a priest or try to get the church involved. Yeah, you, that, yeah, you have to seek your resource that would help in your faith and belief system. Okay, um... Last question here, because I know, you know, oh my gosh, the time has escaped us. We've been talking now for uh, about an hour. Just, um, I have well, one last question for you, Greg. I know it's gone by fast, hasn't it? Yeah, you can make two parts of the show if you want. <laughs> yeah, I could, definitely. Um, very interesting talking to you. And, and gosh, I, we want, I know I want to get you back on again and, and talk to you. Just really love talking to you. We can even, you know, I know last time we had you on, uh, it was our Ghostbust Disneyland Ghostbuster series, uh, our episode yeah, that we had, that. and wouldn't it be kind of cool? You know, there's so many ghost stories coming out of Disney World and Disneyland. It would be cool, buddy, if we could be the first, uh, or you could be the first. Uh, I would just go there and watch, but paranormal investigator to investigate the happiest place on earth. Yeah, that's true. We. We were one of the first, I think we were the first ones in Six Flags over in America here that investigated that. That's right. I remember you telling me that at one point. You're absolutely right. Yeah, listeners, they were the very first 
paranormal group to go into Six Flags over um, in America, right outside St. Louis, Missouri, in Eureka, Missouri, and investigate that location. I was going to say, real real quick, anything really neat come from that investigation real fast? Oh, yeah. We we had some bizarre encounters and experiences during the three weekends, captured numerous of the kind of voice you know, EVPs, and people saw full apparitions of places, but we didn't catch them on camera. But, you know, amusement parks like that, you got to figure the amount of tragedies in the past there, and and as people pass away of heart attacks and other explainable causes, you know, from going to a place like that. What part of the park should I stay away from? Uh, that's, it depends what you like. You know, <laughs> not all ghosts are bad. Some are, you know, not friendly like Casper, but they could be intriguing. But two of the theaters there, we captured that in. And outside area by their pavilions and, and stands, we caught you know stuff in. And actually, in their haunted house during that year, we caught stuff in. Oh, interesting. You know what though? I don't care if they are Casper the friendly ghost. Hey, you stay on your realm or dimension, and I'll stay within mine. We'll we'll, we'll <laughs> remain separate. That's a okay with me. Now, through your investigations, how many years have you been practicing this? Well, on a team setting, I think it's going on about a decade now. Okay, so... Personal personal setting, it it extends way beyond that. Has this taken a toll on your just personal well-being or maybe um, your health? Or have you felt like, uh, you know, always investigating uh, cases and maybe dealing with negative cases and just being in this realm... Does it take a toll on investigators like yourself? I believe it does to some extent, but to what extent we cannot gauge because at the same time we're aging, and aging takes a toll on people as well. Okay. So you, you really can't draw a line saying this is caused by the paranormal and this is caused by normal aging or medical you know, process. Fair enough. So it's very difficult, but there is negativity, you know, in the paranormal and such negativity, I believe, can't attach and affect people to different ways. Okay, Greg, um, thank you for coming on to the Mousecapades podcast, the number one podcast that entertains that space between your ears, listeners. So, Greg, again, uh, you're going to be doing a live event, you're part of a live event this Friday on Destination America, the first uh, live event coming out of the Exorcist House there in St. Louis, Missouri. Again, listeners, check your cable provider, your satellite provider, and tune into that. It's going to be 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can watch it live and be part of the case and experience it just as if like you are currently there just like greg will be greg could you uh tell the listeners how they can find you and your organization well they can find us on the internet our website it would be a starter and that's www.paranormaltaskforce.com and then we also have a facebook page and i can't remember the, you know the code to get to that but but people can just look up Paranormal Task Force on the Facebook search and find us in the same thing with our Twitter page. Okay, and if people who are interested in this uh, topic, uh, you know, like the discussion we have been having the last hour, they can actually take some educational courses through you guys at uh, some local libraries and get spun up on, on certain topics and uh, and go from there. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for what you do. and. Um, 
thanks for coming back on to our show. I want to have you back on in the future. And just thanks for being such a dear friend, bud. I, I really do appreciate it. And the listeners and I and my and Dave and myself will definitely like uh, links and chain mail, say those prayers so they can all link up and provide that spiritual armor for you this Friday night, bud. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that very much. I also appreciate your friendship and being such a wonderful host at the same time. Thanks, man. Um, thanks again for coming on the show, buddy. It's about that time. Peace. Have a magical day. Have an idea, question, or want to share your experiences on the show? Contact Nick and Dave anytime. Email them at mousecapadespodcast at gmail.com. Text them at 407-674-0414. Follow Nick and Dave on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Simply search for Mousecapades Podcast. Listen to Nick and Dave on iTunes, Podcast Attic, TuneIn Radio, and Stitcher Radio. Simply search for Mousecapades Podcast.